Okay, so already we're getting right to one of the core topics that I'm sure we're going to be talking right. about uh, for the next hour, and that is um, we anthropomorphize almost everything that we look at. So we project our pro- particular condition, that is, the condition of being a human species, a part of the human species on this planet, onto almost everything we see and touch All and right. feel, and we measure everything we see and touch and feel and interact with in these very human ways, and wow, do we do that to animals. I'm Jonah Chester. I'm Clay Catlin, and you're listening to Animal Human. This show is a production of IU's College of Arts and Sciences and a proud part of the 2018 semester. Each episode, we talk with a different IU researcher to examine where we as humans belong in the animal kingdom. We also examine the interactions of humans and animals in art, literature, and science. In this episode, Clay talks with Dr. Brandon Barker. Dr. Barker is a professor in the folklore department here at IU. He researches the myths and human-like characters that evolve around animals in folk cultures. How do these characters and understandings influence our interaction with these animals? His class, The Science of Animal Folklore, will discuss just that question. He also looks at what humans use to separate ourselves from animals, as well as how we make animals more human-like. He's managed to encapsulate his research, for the most part, into the question, would it be possible for animals to study humans scientifically? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Of course. Excited to be here. So my first question for you is, how is your work in the field of folklore related to this year's semester theme? Right. So the theme is animal-human. And it turns out one of the really good ways to think about what folklore is, is folklore assists people in getting about in their daily day lives. Or it governs the ways that we get about in our day-to-day lives. And um, I think I can elaborate on some of that. So um, how do you dress when you get up in the morning? You know, which clothes do you wear for which particular um, events that you're going to go to that day? Um, What do you eat for breakfast? What do you eat for lunch? When do you eat breakfast? When do you eat lunch? How do you speak around certain people? How do you not speak around? All these things are governed by cultural traditions. And there are certain things that show up throughout the different, what we call genres of folklore. So a lot of times... Here's an ironic word. Traditionally, people think of folklore as the stories that people tell. Well, let's just consider the genres of stories that people tell. So people tell myths. These are the stories that we tell that help us understand the way the world was created or what's going to happen to us after we die. People tell legends. This is how we understand our historical past, maybe how we understand certain um, supernatural phenomena. People tell folk tales or fairy tales. These are stories that we know are fiction, and we just tell those stories in order to create a fun, exciting, fictitious experience. Okay, the interesting thing about animals is that animals is one of those topics, not unlike food, not unlike God, not unlike clothes, that shows up in all of the different genres of folklore. And um, it's probably because our lives are filled up with interacting with animals. And it's sort of like, this is almost a cliche to say in uh, cultural studies and social sciences that animals are good to think with, uh, famously attributed to this structuralist social scientist named Claude Levi-Strauss. But it's quite true. People do think a lot about animals. And a lot of times we use animals to think about ourselves, to think about the people around us. So the two are like, you know, married together from the get-go. Great. So it's almost like people are able to use animals to reflect on themselves a little bit. It's absolutely like that. People are able to use animals to reflect upon themselves, but not just themselves individually, but also themselves as where they stand in culture or themselves as maybe like what they would like to be. For example, I might ask you, would you rather be a lion or an ant? 
Right. And the answer is definitely, it's actually a hard one. Definitely <laughs> lion, though. I, I got to do the generic answer. Okay. Lion. And, and what would the, maybe the generic reasons for that be? The ant, it's, it's sounds pretty unpleasant, like sort of the overcrowding of it. That's my main <laughs> okay, thing. That's my main concern. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Where you, and you're also pretty low. <laughs> well, I guess ants, you'd be really high on the insect food chain, but on the general food chain, you're pretty low. Right, right. right. And then the lion, conversely, is the king of the jungle. Exactly. The lion is majestic. The lion is powerful. Okay, so already we're getting right to one of the core topics that I'm sure we're going to be talking right. about uh, for the next hour. And that is... Um, we anthropomorphize almost everything that we look at. So we project our particular condition, that is the condition of being a human species, a part of the human species on this planet, onto almost everything we see and touch All and right. feel. And we measure everything we see and touch and feel and interact with in these very human ways. And wow, do we do that to animals. So your answer, which, by the way, I think is a perfectly good answer and the oh, correct answer. Thank you. Imagine what just happened right there. You just said, I don't think I'd want to be the ant because, wow, overcrowding. I agree with that. Right, right. But when we say overcrowding right there, automatically we're thinking of being overcrowded in this very human way. As a human, What right, would it feel like ant. to be maybe in like one of the smaller classrooms where you've got 40 students shoved into a small classroom? Yes, exactly. Your shoulder to shoulder. That, but even worse, is what it would be like to be an ant. Right. So we're automatically, no matter what we do, starting from this position of anthropomorphism. Okay, that's really interesting. And this next question is going to get into more of the specifics of that. So your upcoming class, The Science of Animal Folklore, deals with animal folklore and the human characteristics that animals take on within folk stories and understandings. Of all the human personalities given to animals across cultures that you studied, what are you most excited to talk about in this class? This is a really good question. I have a couple of a couple of answers, but let me oh, start with this. Great. One of my favorite things to think about are, uh, I think in, in culture, these are often referred to as shapeshifters. So animals that are part animal and part human. Right. So based upon what we were just saying about anthropomorphism, anytime an animal shows up in human culture, one of the things that this class suggests is that they are always already part animal and part human because we're thinking about them. And when we start to think about them, we're going to, by our very intellectual instincts, start to anthropomorphize them. Right. So uh, let's think then about what are the famous shapeshifters of folklore. We might think of the werewolf. Right. This is a very scary shapeshifter. What yes, does it mean to be a human who can follow the rules of conduct, dare I say the folkloric rules of conduct right. during the day? One of the key folkloric rules being you don't eat the person sitting next to you. However, by night, suddenly the animal instincts or the animal inside of us, which is another key idea that I want to get back to. It isn't just animals that are part human. It's always also humans are partly animals, especially in maybe since Darwin, you know, in, in the in the 19th. 19th, 20th, and here into the 21st century. Right. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with the science part of this class, which I'll talk about in just a second. So yes. I'm super interested in shapeshifters. Of so, of course, humans are going to tell stories about, be interested in, have folklore about animals that are part animal or part human. And we'll be reading one particular folk tale, which I won't summarize the whole thing right here, but it's a, a really famous fairy tale called Hans, My Hedgehog, in which a family wants a child, and but is cursed and gives birth to a child that is part hedgehog and part human. So then the issue, the central issue of this tale is, what would parents do if they had a child that was literally part hedgehog, part human? Right. We think of caring for our children as one of those core 
universal human tendencies. We have a child, and we love our child. There's an African proverb that says, uh, the mother never feels the weight of her own child. No matter how hard it uh, is yeah, to love our child, we don't feel how hard it is. It's, not, it's, it's instinctual for us to love our children. Ah, but now we have the animal question. What if our child were literally part hedgehog, which, by the way, creates all kinds of uh, problems in, okay. with, with the quills of course, yes. <laughs> and the scary features, um, and part human. In, in the end, the hedgehog, and most versions of the tale, does end up being loved by the parents, but it's after a long road and after many trials and tribulations, and also after the hedgehog turning completely human. So uh, it's almost needing to be then, more human than animal right. that we end up loving our own child. So shapeshifters, and we'll talk in this class about werewolves, and we'll talk about Hans my, Hedge, Hans my Hedgehog. We'll talk about the frog prince and other examples of shapeshifters, and that's very, very interesting to me. Right, and that's so interesting because the werewolf example, it really shows our expectations or our ourselves that we put onto animals because, you know, the werewolves are turning into wolves. That's something – we consider it to be, you know, very savage, predatory. Mm -hmm. we, you're able to eat people, you know, mm -hmm. terrorize people. Mm -hmm. But the same couldn't be said about, like, there's no stories probably about people turning into, like, a duck or something at night. Mm -hmm. Because the duck, you know, I guess in our folklore would be a really serene animal that distorts the floats around. So it's interesting that even then you're, we're seeing our expectations we set for these animals. Absolutely. So uh, just to put a little bit of a finer point on what you just said, and it's a really good point, it's that... If the werewolf were anything other than a werewolf, it wouldn't be this supernatural, legendary character that's meant to scare, scare people. Exactly. For example, in South Louisiana, the werewolf takes on the character that's uh, from French, Loup Garou, in South Louisiana. They often pronounce it Rougarou. Uh, the Rougarou is punished and turned into a werewolf, a Rougarou, in South Louisiana because a Catholic has misbehaved. Maybe they've broken a Lenten penance, or maybe they've eaten meat on Friday during Lent, or maybe right. they uh, haven't been going to Mass to take Holy Communion every Sunday. So it's a kind of punishment to become this animal. Not only a kind of punishment, but an evil, malicious, scary, haunting sort of punishment. Take another example of, like, frog prince. Right. So this is a prince that is shape-shifted and, and disguised to the human, to the princess, as a frog. In this instance, it isn't the horror of some macabre, you know, uh, horror flick-style gore that yes. we're worried about. The frog isn't going to eat you like the wolf will. Of course but do you want to kiss a frog? Do we really go. want to be romantically attracted to a frog? Right. So the two different animals serve very specific purposes. Those purposes make sense in very human ways. Oh, interesting, interesting. So that, so that sort of goes into the next point, which is, is there any animal that you have studied that you feel gets a bad rap within folklore? Like some animal that is undeserving of a bad reputation that we've given it. <sighs> yeah, this, was, this is a really kind of a fun question because, you know, I think when I think this question comes up a lot, right. a lot of times when social scientists get this question, some of their first, some of the some of the obvious answers are: well, serpents get a pretty bad rap in mm. Western culture, and of course, we could maybe point towards some of the early books of the Judeo-Christian yes. Bible as the reason why serpents get a bad rap. Another one is: well, spiders. You know, spiders really get a bad rap in mythology and folklore. But it's interesting because, uh, for me personally, because I'm. I am a little skittish around snakes right, and spiders, right. the I actual mean, creatures. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see how the snake, maybe the serpent, shouldn't be to blame for all of humanity's flaws in the context of sin. However, I don't really want to be around them. So, exactly. uh, so that's a great question in that way. 
So any do any of the or any of the trickster figures getting a bad a bad rap? So we think of the fox in many uh, Native American traditions. We think of the coyote. Yeah. And, um, we also think in African American and Southern Southeastern Native traditions of the rabbit being a kind of trickster. Right. Yes. So okay, first, what is a trickster in this human sense? So this is one of the things this class is about. First, we're going to think about it just in the context of humans, so as not to anthropomorphize. And one good way to not anthropomorphize is to be actually thinking about a human. Yes, <laughs> Okay, so uh, what is a trickster? Well, a trickster is someone who is conniving, who sees two or three steps ahead of um, logical outcomes and then manipulates an individual so that the individual gets tricked or doesn't recognize what the outcome right. is going to be before the outcome actually Right, happens. you're using a higher intellect for something yeah. malicious as opposed to something right. productive. So I have said that animals are good to think with. So you might think, okay, the trickster. It, what do we get, humans, out of projecting the trickster onto particular animals in, in given cultures? They're different animals, whether it's a fox, whether it's a coyote, whether it's a rabbit. Well, we get to project it onto something that isn't a human. So we can label the trickster as oh. someone to be worried about. Oh, I see. That's but at the same time, we don't have to label Clay. Or yes. we don't have to label Brandon as the person to be, which is much more high stakes in the context of human Oh, cultures. so it's sort of like a, I mean, to bring up another animal, it's sort of a scapegoat. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. It took me two seconds to catch that. Nice. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So um, wh why do we do this? Well, um, it's safe culturally, but also these things are emergent. Remember, it's also true that the coyote will make it into the, 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 the hen house. Exactly. Um, um, uh, the rabbit will get into your garden and eat your radishes. There are these negative outcomes that we can directly uh, point to as very real things. So maybe the rabbit is tricky. And the other side of this quest, uh, class, though, the science of animal folklore, gets into whether or not animals ever really think in those kinds of ways as we do when we're thinking of a trickster. The poor little rabbit is just trying to find something to eat. Exactly. He's working what he's got. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the, the bodily features he has, the mental structures and abilities that he has, and he makes it into the garden and he eats the radishes. Whether or not he is thinking of the gardener and tricking the gardener, well, that's less likely. And so almost all tricksters get a bad rap, and that's it. You're kind of just doing what you are. Okay, yeah. You're being what you are. You're existing as you are. And humans exist as we are whenever we tell stories about animals. It is a part of who we are as a species, what our mental abilities are, and the way we behave in the world. The rabbit is just the rabbit. And exactly. one of the things the rabbit is going to do is get in and steal your radishes. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. So changing gears to another side of what you're doing for Themester, this fall is part of Themester 2018. You're presenting a public theatrical lecture, Confessions of a Monkey Mind Doctor, that you co-wrote with comparative psychologist Daniel Pavanelli. Can you tell us a little bit about the show? Yeah, absolutely. So we are very excited uh, about this show and very thankful to Themester. We've recently partnered with Ivy Tech Community College, and so the show is actually going to take place at the Waldron Center uh, downtown in Bloomington. Oh, cool. And it's going to be uh, the last week of November, and I'm going to say the 28th and the 29th, I believe. And so, yeah, this is how this came together. So I've said that animals are good to think with. Right. Well, um, since the advent of modern psychology, uh, scientists have been interested in studying animals as a way to do several things whenever it comes to understanding the world more generally. But one of the things scientists have been interested in studying animals about is as a way to understand humans. 
So if we can understand what the difference between, for example, a chimpanzee and a human is, that not only teaches us something about the chimpanzee, but maybe it teaches us something about the uniqueness of what it means to be human. It was a very interesting question. Do you understand all these kinds of studies are taking place in the context of evolution, in the context of evolutionary biology, in the context of evolutionary psychology? And so in this sort of drive to understand animals and humans alongside one another as a way to understand the way our mind works, human minds work, it turns out that some really interesting things that have, have happened. So... One of those things is that um, certain folkloric traditions from culture have made their way into the laboratory. And I'll give you a couple of uh, brief examples. There are some scientists recently who did some studies on particular gestural um, activities to test whether or not orangutans could play charades. Okay, well, charades is a folk game. Isn't that very interesting? Yes, We're going to take the folk game in this objective scientific space and use that as our target to judge mentality of these orangutans. Another oh, one is recently we realized that crows could be trained in order to drop stones into a, you know, a beaker filled with water and a reward, usually a worm, I think, floating on top of the water. And once the stones are dropped in the water, the worm comes closer and eventually the crow gets to eat the worm. Well, you may recognize this as Aesop's The Crow in the Pitcher, in which a thirsty crow comes to the pitcher, can't knock the pitcher over, its beak isn't long enough to get down to the pitcher, so the thirsty crow picks up rocks and drops them in the water, therefore displacing the water and drinks the water and is no longer thirsty. This is in the fable. Yes. But the scientists have taken the fable to the laboratory and, in a sense, proved it true. And I'm doing air quotes yes, here. Yes. But whatever that, that. <laughs> whatever we mean by true in that sense. Okay, so without getting into the waters of the technicalities of whether or not the crow has insight to understand water displacement, um, I'll leave that to you know the scientists. Yes. As someone who studies culture, wow, who's, here's two different cultural arenas, a folkloric arena and also a literary arena. So yeah. it was folkloric in the time of Aesop, who really wasn't one individual. This is just folklore around the time of Aesop. And then uh, it has a long literary tradition, of course, these Aesop's fables do. And then also now in 21st century science, the exact same idea, which is very clearly starting in humans' minds, right. has made its way onto how we think with, through, and about crows. That's fascinating to me. My colleague, Daniel Povinelli, first told me about this. And uh, Danny has spent 30 years studying chimpanzees. And one of the things that's happened in the past several decades is that there's been kind of a turn in which it seems as though much work in comparative psychology is pointing towards the idea that humans are more like animals or animals are more like humans, right. we might say, than different. And this is really this is the kind of thing that I was talking about with the headlines. So um, did you know crows are smarter than your five year old daughter? Because exactly. Of some of these experience. And did you know that elephants worship their dead? Okay, these are fascinating topics. And in this cultural context, for me, I'm like, it's wow. Why has the pendulum swung? Right. Danny's interesting in that his work in science has really worked to prove something quite different. That maybe, uh, of course, animals um, have cognition, cognitive processes that are complex. They think, they communicate to get about in the world. However, Danny wants to maintain that we don't have any hard proof that they get about in the world or that their cogn cognitive processes work in the same ways that humans 
do. Right. Let me give you a specific example of an experiment of his. You can take two towels, okay? Right. Okay. And um, you, the chimpanzee loves the apple. You take the towels and you lay them on the other side of a plexiglass wall. And, of course, they love the apple because, well, it's sweet, it's fruit, it's, um, uh, sugar, you know, all those kinds of reasons that the chimpanzee would want to eat the apple. So seeing the reward on the other side of the plexiglass, the only thing that is within reach of the chimpanzee is the tip of the towel. Okay. The tip of the towel that's laying on the floor, and on the opposite end of the tip of the towel that the chimpanzee can reach right. are two apples. One apple is resting on top of the towel. One apple is resting beside but not touching the towel. In this instance, the chimpanzee will, much greater than chance, pull the towel that has the apple resting on top of it. However, if you change the situation just a little bit (coughs) and you take one apple and set it on top of the towel and one apple beside the towel but also touching the towel, the chimpanzee will pull at almost chance. So Danny Povinelli takes this as a suggestion to say, yes, the chimpanzee wants the apple. Yes, the chimpanzee knows that in certain conditions it should pull this one or that one. What's absent here, he suggests in this case, what's absent is this higher order understanding of weight. And if you think about it, we do have a very complex and higher order understanding of weight. And by higher order, I mean across, across different perceptual experiences. So when you hold a cup, Um, a glass, a heavy glass mug, or a light plastic cup, you have this sensation of feeling the weight, and they're different. Then, if those two things were flying at your face, you would know to dodge... The mug. The mug and get hit with the plastic cup. Okay, so uh, exactly. And the reason why you pass is because, well, you're human, and humans are really good at that. It's unclear whether or not uh, chimpanzees uh, have that kind of robust understanding of weight. Okay, so then we take all of these questions and we put them together into Confessions of a Former Monkey Mind Doctor. And this is a story that is very, very, very loosely based upon uh, Danny's 30 years um, in comparative psychology. And it makes us ask this question. What would happen if you spent your entire life scientifically, rigorously trying to answer what is the difference between humans and animals? And what you found when you got there, when you spent 30 years studying this, what you found, what you think you found is ambiguity. We just can't know. No, chimpanzee, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that you are like humans because we don't have proof that you're like humans. Humans, you're very complex. You have some things that we're quite certain the chimpanzee doesn't have, but you're also animal-like in some very interesting ways, too. On top of that, it's hard for us to know when we're acting because of our animal side or our human side kind of brings us back to Hans the Hedgehog right. and the werewolf, doesn't it? And so the play itself is, it's a theatrical lecture, we've called it, and what, what it really is is a, a former chimpanzee psychologist right. and a chimpanzee, so Dr. Fomomendo and the chimpanzee is Mojo, and it just turns out that the chimpanzee, uh, you know, talks and dances. And right. <laughs> so um, what if this chimpanzee could have, you know, ranging conversation with right. this former monkey mind doctor? Oh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. So, and with this theatrical lecture you briefly mentioned, first of all, can you explain a little bit more what theatrical lecture is? Uh-huh. And what are the advantages that, that made you think, okay, this is how, I sh- how we should format this thing we're trying to say? So confessions of a former monkey mind doctor... Uh, was an idea that Danny had been playing with for a long time because, as I said, he sort of 
works differently than some of his colleagues in comparative psychology and cognitive science um, in that he often works to find those things, the space, the activities in which the animal can't succeed in the way that the human can. Right. So he's looking for difference as much as he's looking at similarity. Well, it turns out that's sometimes not a very popular stance to take. You can imagine trying to tell someone who loves their dog that the dog maybe isn't as human as you think your dog right. is. By the way, just as an aside, this doesn't mean that there aren't great reasons to love the dog. This doesn't mean that the dog isn't really, really smart, which dogs, of course, yeah, are. Yeah, because it's kind of the, the whole thing is like, oh, if this thing doesn't love me, it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, can the dog ever love you in the way that a human loves you? That's where it's very tough. We don't have, maybe not. Maybe not. Can the dog love you in the way that dogs love? Absolutely. Exactly. And that's great. And I think that enriches human life and the dog's life too. But once you really get down to some philosophical core, it's very difficult to say uh, whether or not uh, the dog loves us in the way that our fellow humans love us. Okay. So because that's such a difficult idea to communicate, we begin to say, you know, maybe the old-fashioned lecture, maybe the old-fashioned article in a journal isn't the right venue for trying to communicate what, right. we, what we're trying to say here. Okay. So we came up with the idea, what if, you know, we have a scientist who is speaking outside of these normal discursive spaces, uh, spaces of conversation, a textbook, a lecture, uh, a journal article, and it was more of a confession. So imagine what happens once a human starts confessing to another. And, of course, there's all kinds of religious implications of and legal implications. And those things do play a role in this particular lecture. So we wanted to change the venue so that we could talk to people in a, in a different kind of space. Because talking, um, being radical, in, for example, about the ideas we have about the difference or the similarities between animals and humans is much safer in this theatrical space. So we intend it to be a lecture in that. The audience coming away from it, we hope, will think more rigorously and also maybe uh, more excitingly about the similarities and differences between people and animals. Um, but we also intend it to be theatrical in that, it, you know, it's going to be in a theater. It's going to have uh, a full lighting plot. Right. It's going to it's going to ha- it's going to have all of the accoutrement of theater, but it's going to in, at times become quite lecture like. So. It's almost this intersection of education and entertainment. <laughs> right. And that totally brings it back to what you were saying earlier, like the whole thing about does my dog love me like I love it, where in that case, like, and as much as this make, might make dog lovers matter, so I'm not trying, obviously. <laughs> um, dogs are great. But even thinking this dog loves me the same way I does is the same way of probably unrealistically putting our feelings, our personalities onto other animals when it should just be enough for the dog to see us however it sees us right exactly it should just be enough for that and then but it's an open-ended question whether or not that's enough it's really difficult to know if that was it if we all went around thinking that our cats and dogs by the way i love cats and dogs too i hope it doesn't sound like i'm standing above the fray i anthropomorphize my animals including my beta fish uh, all the time oh look at that he swims he's coming towards me because he loves me and that's just the way we operate with animals but objective Expository science should do its best to not fall into those sorts of anthropomorphic pitfalls. So the question is, if you pushed yourself to the edge of expository science, 
the point at which you were never going to allow in any kind of fuzzy distinction, never going to allow in any kind of anthropomorphic tendency, then could the animal and the human still love each other in ways that are appropriate, in ways that are fulfilling, in ways that are beneficial for both. Right. That's a much different question. It's a much different question. Interesting. That's sort of what the what the confession gets into, what the show gets into. All right. Into. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that, definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. This yeah. has been super fascinating. Talk. Thank you. Yeah. Right. I appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. This show is a project of the Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences Themester. Our thanks for Dr. Barker for providing his insight on this episode. His class for the semester is the Science of Animal Folklore. His theatrical lecture, Confessions of a Monkey Mind Doctor, will be put on November 28th and 29th at 7.30 p.m. Admission is free. Listeners interested in knowing more about the program can visit the Themester website for more information. Editing, hosting, and mixing for this episode was done by Clay. Next time, Jonah talks with Professor Ivan Kralkamp, who looks at the portrayal of animals in Victorian literature and how said portrayal helps shape our modern impressions of animals. He also discusses how the earliest roots of the animal rights movement are reflected in this literature. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Our intro song is Night Owl by Broke for Free. Our outro song is Warm Up Suit, also by Broke for Free. Both of those were accessed and used courtesy of a Creative Commons attribution license via the Free Music Archive.